Good morning and welcome to Kirkpatrick's online service. Whether you join with us every week or this is your first time tuning in, you're so welcome. It is great to be with you this morning. It is our prayer that this service will be a real blessing to you and that you will go out into the week ahead of you with your eyes firmly fixed upon Jesus. To begin our time of worship this morning, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 47. This is a psalm that calls us to behold the majesty of our God, the God that we come to worship this morning. Let's read Psalm 47 together now. Clap your hands, all ye nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. For the Lord Most High is awesome, the great King over all the earth. He subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loved. God has ascended amid shouts of joy, the Lord amid the sounding of trumpets. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham. For the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. Amen. We thank God for his word to us. Let's pray together now. Our Father, you reign over all the nations. You are seated on your holy throne. You are worthy of our praise and adoration. Father, thank you that you know us and care about us. You know those of us who come to worship you this morning with full hearts. And you also know those of us who come to worship you this morning with weary hearts, tired after a long week. Father, thank you that you are a God of compassion who cares so deeply about your children. Renew our hearts, we pray. As we reflect on the days behind us, we are so aware of the many ways we have not lived to bring you the rightful glory and honour that you deserve. Forgive us, we pray. Thank you so much for the incredible forgiveness of sin that is made possible by Jesus. We are so grateful for the assurance that we can know because of this forgiveness. Make us thankful, we pray, and change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's praise God together now as we sing our first hymn, Behold Our God. Genesis 13. Abram and Lot separate. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarrelling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's, the Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarrelling between you and me, or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around 
and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zohar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are, to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. So we've only been journeying a couple of weeks with Abraham and yet we have covered a huge amount of ground in this time. Maybe like me your geography is not great and you need a map to help you visualise where we've been. So have a look here at the route Abraham has taken. He has in fact travelled hundreds of miles, 700 miles from Ur to Haran another 500 miles through Canaan, and then that last 300 mile stretch to Egypt. But it's not the contours on the map that has occupied our attention. It's the ups and the downs of Abraham's life. Because as Bilbo Baggins reminded us last week, Abraham is on an adventure. And that adventure has had its highs and its lows. Mentioning The Hobbit here, I'm reminded of another famous opening passage that I think speaks into this um, undulating journey of Abraham's life. It's a tale of two cities. You maybe haven't read the book, but I'm sure you know these opening words well. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. Hasn't this been like Abraham's experience? In the past couple of weeks, we have seen his faith and his failing, his courage and his cowardice, his honesty and his deceit. And last week, let's be honest, there was an awful lot more failing than there was faith. But in chapter 13, things change. It's quite different. In this chapter, Abraham returns home. But his journey home is more than just a physical return. It's a symbolic homecoming. There's another parallel, I think, with The Hobbit here, because as fans of the novel will know, Bilbo in the story writes down his adventures in a book that he calls There and Back Again. And I think this kind of sums up Abraham's story so far. He's been there in chapter 12. He arrives in the promised land, but then... For whatever reason, he finds himself in the wrong place, in Egypt. He messes up. But by the grace of God, he comes back again. Perhaps you too feel like you're in the wrong place today. Maybe in the past few months, you find yourself getting off track a bit. 
In fact, right now it feels more like the worst of times than the best of times. Well, can I suggest to you that today might be an opportunity to come back again? As we pay attention to this story of Abraham, let's see it as an opportunity to recognise it for what it is, an invitation for you to commit yourself once more to the promises of God, to respond to his grace and to trust in his faithfulness. Now, we're going to have a look at that story now, but in fact, there are actually two stories, I think, in chapter 13. Two stories that feature our central character, Abram. I'm going to call the first story, A Tale of Two Kinsmen. Now, the two kinsmen, of course, are Abraham and his nephew Lot. Both men have returned, we're told, with great wealth. But this wealth brings with it its own problems. Because before, while there was a worry that the land maybe wasn't um, fertile enough to support Abraham and his family, now the issue is, is the land big enough to support these two tribes and all their wealth and to prevent them from fighting, to allow them to live in peace with one another? Well, Abraham's response to this new problem only highlights how much this man has changed since his sojourn in Egypt. The self-serving Abraham that we met in chapter 12, the Abraham who was willing to sell out his own wife for his own survival, well, that Abraham is gone. Instead, we have a generous uncle, an uncle who is willing to give his nephew the pick of the land. Lot, however, you'll have noticed, does not have that same spirit of generosity. The custom of the time, of course, would have been for Lot to defer to his older uncle, to allow Abraham to make the choice of the land. But that's not what Lot does. Instead, he seizes the opportunity to get whatever he can for himself. I want you to look carefully at what the text says here. Maybe if you've got your Bible open, you can have a look. It says, Lot looked around and saw. He looked around Lot was greedy with his eyes. He peers around carefully. He scars the landscape to spot only the very best terrain. And he settles on this patch we're told of well-watered ground. Now, of course, we know that water is a precious commodity in the ancient world. And Lot's sure to take it for himself. But Lot actually takes more in fact, than he's been offered by his uncle. Now, I'll admit this point isn't perhaps the easiest one to spot. But I want you just to notice again how Abraham offers Lot, we're told, land to Abraham's left or to his right. Now, the scholar James McKeown, who who teaches at Union College, actually, in his commentary on Genesis, he explains that in the ancient world, and when folk were giving direction, they would look to the rising sun in the east. And this means that left and right can be taken as north and south. But where does Lot choose to go? It's neither to the north nor to the south. Instead, Lot decides to pitch his tent in the east. Now let me ask you, who else goes east 
in the story of Genesis. Have a think. We'll go back to the very start. Remember, it's out of the eastern gate that Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. Cain flees east when he murders his brother Abel. And those tar builders travel to the east to go about their ill-fated building project. You see, east in Genesis symbolises going away from God. And it's exactly that that the story is pointing us to about Lot here. Lot is moving away from God. But while this is only hinted at in Lot's direction of travel, the text actually makes it quite clear when it tells us where exactly Lot pitches his tent. Let me read again what it says. The two men parted company, we read, Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain, and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked, and were sinning greatly against the Lord. But the wickedness of Sodom, as apparent as it was to everyone else, just did not feature in Lot's thinking. He was more concerned with getting what was best for him. But despite all his looking, the irony is that Lot fails to see what you and I are able to see all too clearly. The storm clouds of judgment brewing in the distance. You see, the well-watered land might look good, but we know that Lot's decision is going to have a very unhappy end. But the tale of those two particular cities will have to wait for another time because our focus is on Abram. Because while Lot pitches his tent near Sodom, we're told that Abram stays in the land of promise. And while Lot's short-sightedness brings him long-term trouble, Abram's renewed trust in God's promises brings him long-term blessing. Listen again to what the Lord says to Abram in verse 14. Look around from where you are to the north and the south, to the east and west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. The promise here is even bigger than what Abram could have imagined. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, says the Lord, so that if anyone could count that dust, then your offspring could be counted too. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. There's a sharp contrast in this story between these two kinsmen, isn't there? Lot takes it upon himself to look about him, but Abram is invited to look by the Lord. Lot hungrily desires all the best his eyes can see, while God charges Abram to see more than he could otherwise imagine. This contrast emphasises to us just how much Abram has changed. He no longer doubts the promises of God. He has learned to trust instead. Last week, you'll remember, Christoph challenged us with that same thing. How much do we really have faith that God will provide? 
Well, although ours might be a failing faith, what matters, Christoph reminded us, is the faithfulness of God. But you know, today I don't want us to set that question aside because I think it's a question we need to keep asking ourselves. It's perhaps one of the most crucial questions we need to ask ourselves in this day and age. If you'll remember back to the start of our series, Christoph challenged us to think about some of the things God is asking us as his people to leave behind from the culture we find ourselves in. Well, I want to suggest to you that one of the most powerful forces in our world that I think we need to leave behind is what the theologian Walter Brueggemann calls the ideology of scarcity. The ideology of scarcity. Let me explain what this is. An ideology of scarcity says, no, there's not enough. So hold on to what you have. In fact, don't just hold on to it. Hoard it. Put aside more than you need so that if you need it, it'll be there, even if others must do without. Didn't the run on the supermarkets during the last lockdown just confirm this to us? I know of more than one fight that broke out in my local Tesco, I'm not joking, over toilet rolls. But you know, this ideology of scarcity just does not stand up to scripture. The Bible tells us that God has made a world of abundance. There is more than enough for everyone. It's just up to us to share it. Abraham, in the story we've read today, learns to release himself by the grace of God from this ideology of scarcity. He learns what it is to trust in God's promises. And God responds to that faith with abundance so that Abraham might go on to be a blessing to the whole world. So I guess the question for us is, how do we do that today? How do we trust in the abundance of God's grace and say no to this myth of scarcity? How do we do that so that we can be a blessing to our neighbours, especially in these dark times we find ourselves in? Well, here's what Brueggemann says on it, and I think he's right. What we know in the secret recesses of our hearts is that the story of scarcity is a tale of death. And the people of God counter this tale by witnessing to the manna. There is more excellent bread than crass materialism. It is the bread of life. And you don't have to bake it. Isn't this what our Lord Jesus says? The bread of life in the Gospel of Matthew. Let me remind you of his words. So do not worry saying what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom. And his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. So let's not buy into this ideology of scarcity, especially as we face the likelihood of a 
a difficult winter ahead. As Abraham set his eyes on God's promise, let us, as heirs of Abraham, set our focus on God's kingdom and his righteousness, so that we too might be a blessing to those in need. So that's our tale of two kinsmen. But there's one more very short tale from this chapter that I want to share with you. I'm calling this one a tale of two altars. Okay, it's not so much a story. It's more an observation as we conclude. Because if you've been following this story closely for the last few weeks, um, you might have noticed that Abram is a man who likes to build altars. He builds four altars in his life, in fact. And two of them are mentioned in this chapter we've just read. Maybe I should explain that an altar at the time of Abram was just a simple structure made of stone upon which um, Abram would make a sacrifice to God. The first altar is mentioned in verse 4. It's an altar we've seen in before, in fact, um, way back in chapter 12. Abram builds it, you might remember, in response to hearing God's promise spoken to him for the first time. And when Abram sees that altar again in chapter 13, after he's been away at Egypt and come back again, we read here that it causes him to call out to the Lord. Now, this explains a lot for me. Because one of the questions I have about this narrative is, how does Abraham change so much from the Abraham we met in chapter 12 to this man of faith again in chapter 13? And I just wonder, does this altar offer us a clue? You see, apart from being used to make an offering to God, this stone structure also functioned for Abraham as a marker of remembrance. Just imagine the sight for a moment. Abraham is returning from Egypt after leaving that place under a cloud. He's probably feeling a bit dejected. Maybe Sarai isn't really speaking to him at the moment. He has been shamed. He has been humiliated. He's lost his way for a bit. But then he makes the journey homeward. And he finds himself, maybe even without even noticing it, back at that place where God spoke to him. And he looks up and he sees that monument, that altar that he built. A tangible reminder of the promises of God. I wonder if it was this very sight of that altar that caused Abram to recommit, to cry out again to the Lord. With tears of sorrow at what he had forgotten and tears of joy at what he had remembered again. It's no surprise to us, is it, that the first thing Abraham does when God speaks to him again in this chapter, when he renews that promise and expands it even, well, it's to build another altar. He responds to God's grace in the only way he knows how in an act of worship, of thanksgiving to God who makes and keeps promises. 
But I wonder again, is this second altar also a way of Abraham marking that moment? Because Abraham has learned that he is quite prone to forgetting and he needs to be reminded. We don't build altars like Abraham's anymore today. We no longer have need to make sacrifice. As the writer of Hebrews tells us, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. But scripture also tells us that we are to present ourselves as altars. In Hebrews, we also read these words. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. In a moment, we are going to sing a hymn that Chloe's chosen for us. A hymn that reminds us of this truth. I will offer up my life in spirit and truth, pouring out this oil of love in my worship to you. In surrender, I must give my every part. Lord, receive sacrifice of a broken heart. Before Matt Redmond wrote his hymn, George Herbert wrote a poem. It's a poem that appropriately is called The Altar. And you'll see in a moment that it is in fact shaped like an altar you might find in an Anglican church, but it's also shaped like something else, the letter I. Because Herbert is reminding us that we are altars, broken altars, people of failing faith. But even with our own brokenness and our imperfections, our smallest offerings are still pleasing to God because of what Jesus has done for us. I want to read this poem to you now as we finish It's not an easy poem, I warn you. It's maybe one that you want to take away and reflect on or study a little bit. Do a Google search on it to find out what it's really about. Um, But I'm offering it to you now as sort of a stone of remembrance. Something tangible that you can look to to remind you of God's faithfulness in your life. And we also offer it now together as uh, the fruit of of our lips as a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. The altar. A broken altar, Lord, thy servant rears, made of a heart and cemented with tears, whose parts are as thy hand did frame. No workman's tool hath touched the same. A heart alone is such a stone as nothing but thy power doth cut. Wherefore each part of my hard heart meets in this frame to praise thy name that if I chance to hold my peace these stones to praise thee may not cease. O let thy blessed sacrifice be mine 
and sanctify this altar to be thine. We now come to that time in our service when we have the privilege of lifting others before the Lord in prayer. Uh, Let's take some time to pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, in these days of uncertainty and confusion, we know we come before the rock of ages, the one who knows all things. In this time of separation and isolation, we come before the God of fellowship who unites your children by the power of your spirit to come before you with one voice, As we see strife across the world, we thank you that we can come before our God of perfect peace. And as we are deeply aware of our own weaknesses and failures, we thank you for Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Our souls bless your name, Lord, and forget not all your benefits. We praise you for your power, your majesty, your grace and your goodness. We now bring before you our prayers for your world and for others within it. We pray for countries at war, for the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict. May you bring peace to that land and an end to the fighting and violence that has marred it for generations. May your church flourish in these lands and may your people speak of your hope in the midst of fear, your abounding love in the face of hate and your peace in this time of war. Raise up and protect your people. May they be peacemakers in that place. Lord, as isolation and separation has been the prevailing theme since March, may you use this time to lift up our hearts to you and to others. We think of our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church who are all too familiar with a sense of separation and fear. We stand with them, Lord, in your name. Those who have lost everything because they, they, they want to follow you. Lord, meet their needs. Those who are no strangers to violence and loss, comfort them. To those who feel fearful and crushed, may they know deeply that nothing can separate them from your love. To those who are feeling alone, may they know the God of angel armies is by their side. To those who don't feel like they can keep going, strengthen them and give them your hope to finish the race set before them. Lord, help us never to forget our brothers and sisters who are suffering in your name. This part of your body is so precious, yet so often forgotten. In these days, help us to be more focused on others than we've ever been before. Lord, we take this time of silence now 
to lift up those we know so desperately who need your touch. Lord, we lift this land to you. In these days of rising transmission rates, shadows deepening, we ask for your grace and mercy. Guide our leaders. Help them to make wise and good decisions. We pray against a second wave of this virus. May you heal this land in Jesus' name. As we close, we pray for those in our church who are struggling with illness, with loneliness, we thank you that you know us, know our burdens, and so desire to be at work in us. Move among us by your Holy Spirit. You made the world, and yet you know even the sparrows. We trust you. We pray all these things in and through the most powerful name, of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I just have a couple of announcements to highlight to you at this point in our service. Um, As you know, we've been hosting some socially distant services at the church building all throughout the month of September. And while we started just a few weeks ago now, simply watching the YouTube service that you've been watching at home, Uh, The last couple of weeks, we've moved to something more like a normal service. Initially, we've welcomed two groups along to this. We've welcomed those who don't have access to the online services, but also to those who've been worshipping alone at home. Well, this Sunday, that's changed a little bit. Um, This Sunday, the 4th of October, as I'm recording this, we've invited two discipleship groups along on a trial basis. Now, if this goes well, we hope to be able to invite all of you to a service soon on a rota basis so that you'll be invited every three or four weeks. We're also considering whether we can manage two Sunday services, one at 10 o'clock and then perhaps one at 1130. And if we can make this work, well, then we hope that you'll be able to attend church a little bit more regularly. Please do pray for all of these plans and for the Project Restart team who've been working so hard to make decisions and to put the arrangements in place. It would be great to have as many of us as possible back in the church building on something like a regular basis. And just a few things to highlight from this week's email. You'll see that there's a reflection on the Sands with a local interest An invitation to a Home for Good discussion group starting on the 15th of October and some other resources to encourage you in these days. But finally, I have some good news to share with our church family. 
It's with great delight that we're able to announce the birth of Clara Rose Nevin, daughter of Rebecca and Stuart Nevin. Congratulations to you all. Please join with them in thanking God and may we continue to pray for them in the days ahead. As we come to the end of our service this morning before we sing our closing hymn, let's remember who it is that we are serving this week. Our God who is faithful, who goes before us, who has brought us from a life of darkness and sin to a life of light, a life lived to the full. This is our God. Just as Abraham fixed his eyes upon God's promise, may we as heirs of this same promise go into the week ahead of us with our eyes firmly fixed upon Jesus, seeking first the kingdom of God each and every day. Let's lift our voices now and sing praises to his name. Let's sing, Be Thou My Vision. Thank you for joining with us this morning. Thank you to Paul for taking us through God's word. And thank you to Ashley and Ricky for being part of our service. By way of benediction, let me leave you with these words from the book of Colossians before we go out into the week ahead of us. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen.